millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. New York's LGBTQ film festival, NewFest, is coming up from October 23rd to 29th. The festival features over 160 films from more than 30 countries and promises to be a week of queer cinematic excellence. Busy Bee and Black listeners get discounted tickets on all screenings. Head to newfest.org forward slash festival and use the code NFCP19. Congratulations to our brother Marcellus Reynolds, who has just released his new book, Supreme Models, Iconic Black Women Who Revolutionized Fashion. It's the first ever book celebrating black top models and is filled with revealing essays, interviews, and stunning photographs. You'll find a link to pre-order his amazing new book in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. I often quote Maxine Waters from a 1994 Los Angeles Times article. In it, she famously defends hip-hop and hip-hop artists. These are our children, and they've invented a new art form to describe their pains, fears, and frustrations. Just because we don't like the symbols they use or the way they look, we should not embark on a course of censorship. Of course, hip-hop has changed since its genesis. It is a cultural touchstone, both misunderstood and rightly held to task for misogyny, homophobia, sexism, the list goes on. But are the problems of hip-hop reflective of issues issues in society at large, and what space is there for queerness in hip-hop. Today, I'm joined by Peter P.J. Johnson, more widely known as the Repeat Beat Poet, for a discussion exploring hip-hop's radical roots, the queering of the genre, and how hip-hop has allowed in the past and the present a confrontation with expressions of blackness that have historically been and continue to be policed. We explore where and how P.J. finds inclusivity within hip-hop, reckoning with the many valid criticisms of the genre, the capitalist interest fueling the continued and remarkable growth of the art form, hip-hop's political importance, and finding freedom for people to speak. We also explore poetry as a vehicle of investigation, echo chambers, and moving away from an implicit heterosexuality. We begin with his reading of What Does Black Power Mean? I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with the Repeat Beat Poet. 
we always left our coursework late. This time it was a screening of Black Panther, his first and my fourth. On a break from procrastinating, me and my man catch contorted caricatures of ourselves peering down from the curved dome at the top of the library. Heads still in the theatre, built when updates from the front preceded the feature. We were dead centre as red curtain rose above the orchestra pit in this fantasy factory winding itself into gear again. Back then, newsreel reminded moviegoers that escape was only temporary and that some hells, like some wars, were permanent. One year out of uni and the building's been turned into luxury flats, but I don't worry about that. My G still firing me questions about Black Panther and I tell him we got to get to work. He says I am burying my head in books. I am searching for fractions of my identity in history. Apparently, I have a habit to horcrux my hope. How many lives were torn apart to deliver me to where I am? I was raised on the shoulders of gods, indebted to giants of my past for my privilege in my present. And I once read that the problem of British history is that it all happened overseas. Overseas, Britannia ruled, using these black bodies as fuel to power their future. My man asks me what black power means, asks me why Black Friday is a shopping holiday, asks me why black politicians lie too, asks me why black people's pain is still commodified and sold, asks me why black Twitter still kills it on social media, asks me who Marsha P. Johnson is and why people were chanting that name at Pride. He starts freestyling, winding ropes of references and rings around the point. Who are you? A panther. What you got soul. What you got love. What you got pride. And I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother who don't take no crap off for nobody, who fights for rights by any means necessary, who would rather die on his feet than live on his knees, living it loud, young, gifted, black and proud. Their hands can't hit what their eyes can't see and they don't see race, so they won't see you coming. Meanwhile, I'm dropping a sly Wakandan salute to my little cousin and knowing that tomorrow's not promised for anyone. Revolution has come. Time to pick up the gun. I once heard the last poet say that niggers are scared of revolution. I once heard a poet called Dean Atter say, I am nobody's nigger. I tell him I see love as revolution. Music as revolution, ancestry as revolution, dancing in revolutions, cooking at the revolution and there was always enough to go around while families weave stories of the revolution. I once heard that loving yourself while black was an act of rebellion against the system and I pull up a saved by the bell hooks meme trying to explain something about what the system is, I don't know, a white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, I'll look it up later. Instead, I just tell my man that I love him and that I love my blackness, and that we should get back to work. It's almost a new dawn, and we best be ready. PJ, I encountered you on social media, as I do many of my guests, either through social media or through word of mouth, and was instantly attracted to your poetry. Um, There's, for me, was a kind of immediate resonance so it, it means a lot to to have invited you and, and for you to accept that invitation hey i love to talk in it <laughs> when we had our pre-chat we were talking a lot about hip-hop mm. and it's something that i'm very interested in and indeed that people ask me my opinion about all the time i.e the misogyny the sexism um of hip-hop of this art form and so i was very curious to find that you have a vested interest 
um, in hip hop and that it in many ways inspires your poetry. Can mm. you speak more on your relationship with hip hop? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've been defining my poetic like practice both in the creative sense and the professional sense as as like as a hip hop poet. I've defined myself as a hip hop poet. And what that means for me is that I'm, you know, a modern contemporary poet working from within the culture of hip hop in the same way you might get like a renaissance poet or a post-war English poet or whatever. And so the the thing that hip hop appeared as to me as like a kid you know, um, maybe like eight or nine years old, um, getting my older brother's iTunes library and just copying the whole thing, and a lot of it being hip-hop, is that there was a freedom of expression within it that I I think I, like, inherently felt because I wasn't always the best writer, although, thankfully, I've put a lot of practice in these recent years. I also really loved seeing breakdancers move, and, like, I loved seeing the way that a DJ could kind of um hold court like you know and like sort of hold all these people's attention and share this energy and be like a conduit and then i'd always been interested in in, in graffiti writing so whenever i was coming in and out of london uh from essex where i was born and, and raised you know i could memorize the writers on this train line or the writers on on this street and i think hip-hop as a culture just gave me, strangely enough, a lot of grounding as I learned to place myself within it. Um, I found out the parts of hip hop that I enjoy and that I don't enjoy, the parts that, like, you know, I want to, like, you know, burn to the ground, and the part that I want to lift up to the heavens. Um, yeah, but it was freedom, freedom of expression in a lot of ways. And I think hip hop is is one of those cultural touchstones that can either be exclusive as in it can feel like a barrier to some to many of us in the community and yet for others like yourself it's a way in mm. to the culture would you say that yeah i would do it's it's how hip-hop is impossible to to disentangle from the social moment it's created in hip-hop is a fairly young you know uh culture and and thing that has existed as a defined concept since like you know 1977 uh it was like you know mid 70s 1520 cedric avenue block parties dj call herc the the genesis of it is born from a very specific socio-cultural and economic point these are people uh like you know non-white people in uh predominantly uh the east coast yeah new york's etc and these people had next to nothing in in the in the moments of some of the most like egregious inequality of 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 the 70s at that time um it's very present to point out that one of the first hip-hop crossover tracks to really reach out of 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 the scene was the grandmaster flash and the many male uh, grandmaster flash and the furious five's the message and it's social commentary ultimately it's rats in the front room roaches in the back junkies in the alley with a baseball bat and all of a sudden you're set in this scene um and i think the inclusivity of what hip-hop can be at its height is um is partially the same thing that poetry can do which is uh communicate a feeling an emotion a time an experience incredibly directly um 
in an almost implicitly felt way. Like hip hop's always been really emotional to me. Like there's um, there's there's rhymes and lines and songs that will bring tears to my eyes as I'm wandering around. And I think because of the directness of hip hop, um, I feel that poetry is very well suited to be within that rap as poetry, rhythm and poetry, this sort of things. Um, so I think that's why I find inclusivity within it. But that was definitely a very surface experience of hip hop as I was growing up. And then I was growing into, as I was growing into myself, finding out more about my own opinions, what I actually liked or wanted to, you know, criticize or discover. I had to make my peace with, with many of the valid criticisms of hip hop. And I'm still, that's an ongoing process. It's always an ongoing process. Well, hip hop is a reflection of, right? I think there's a lot of critiques of, of hip hop that suggest that it is a problem, or sorry, not hip hop in general, but a lot of the critiques of the more egregious hip hop um, is that it, it is in and of itself a singular problem versus a symptom, you know, versus hip hop or some hip hop being a reflection of the environment, as you said, um, created in the moment or a reflection of the moment it was created in. Mm. Um, and I think so many of us are reckoning with that, right? And, and it's, like, it's like anything, right? You look beneath the surface and you see so much there that's pointing to something else. Mm, I think it's part of being, being an engaged and critical consumer of media in the moment that, that we are in, you know, um, 2019 and the moments of sort of uh, the advent of social media that's exploded in the past sort of 10, 11 years, and now young people are dealing with what will be lifelong ramifications of, of this new technology and way of interacting, especially in terms of access to music. Um, it's almost like the tyranny of choice. It's There is so much here to choose from. It almost says more about myself as a consumer, how I choose to go about interacting with this or that. Um, it also definitely speaks to what is most commercially viable um, and it speaks to effectively what the capitalist westernized uh, interests are within hip hop culture. You talk about gangster rap being um, uh, being the you know the foremost. Um, weirdly enough, it's one of the most like progressive and regressive art forms that I've enjoyed in terms of giving freedom to people who hadn't had a chance to speak on like a, a on a social scale um, and then also rampant violence misogyny the, what it's done for a lot of black communities but you think about what the fuel behind a lot of that fire was which record companies are pushing which ideas and which uh, literally fashions styles what it is seen to be possible to make money out of uh, that reminds me that Bell Hooks um, in We Real Cool, her book on black men and masculinity, was talking about the violence that black men and black masculinity is supposed to propagate has actually been co-signed by white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so mainstream. Otherwise, they wouldn't promote it so heavily in music and in other forms um, across society. And it's, it's heartbreaking to me to realize that in my mind my idea of hip-hop culture is actually only a tiny sliver sorry my idea of hip-hop culture is 
uh, I would like to think, and I am um, <laughs> I am egotistical enough to, to to believe, is maybe a bit more holistic than um, your average Joe's perception of you know what what uh, what hip hop, or more specifically, they might say rap music as opposed to other parts of the culture. Um, and yeah, it's it's very hard um, to see something that I know has the potential to be a literal site of freedom and and celebration and protest and expression and 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 social reporting and documentation i see all of this within hip-hop i like i and then of course to know how it is used and how it has been used means that i spend a lot of my time like frustrated and and trying to um trying to reclaim and salvage the parts of hip-hop that can and should be saved and and condemning all of the fucking bullshit that is just weighing us down as a society. And of course, hip hop can be viewed as a microcosm of that, you know. And so that's roughly where I am with hip hop, but it's so sticky. Well, it's many things at once, right? <laughs> I think Intersectionality. <laughs> well, in that, in that hip hop is at once violent, misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, and also liberatory, social commentary revolution right because uh, i think we're so good and i think this when i say we i mean society at large at um at reducing everything mm. right to to a one dimension something that's easily digestible that you can point to and tick a box and and they've managed to do that with hip-hop right and recommend someone for us for the listeners who is disrupting what might be the dominant narrative about hip-hop oh Okay, this is a fun question. I, I I came prepared and I wrote a small list so that I wouldn't freeze on the spot. Um, there's uh, there was a uh, a queer collective of of black, mostly male uh, rappers um, in the mid to late nineties called the Deep Dick Collective. Um, and just when I saw that name on the list, I was like, uh, on on the list of uh, artists I was looking up, I was like, this is phenomenal. And then um, they have a track called For Coloured Boys, and the hook is like, um, chocolate-covered rainbows, black boys get on down, and his kind of like blissed-out, slow-funk roll. This is a song named For Coloured Boys, whose rainbows forgot how to bloom, whose moon forgot how to change into suns to illuminate the grey days. This is a song made for color boys Whose heroes forgot how to fly Whose wings were clipped with raging cages Waited to take them with no reasons why This is a song made for color boys Whose uppings had never come up Whose mothers and fathers became the sons and the daughters of revolutions Eternal corrupt Corrupt Yes. So this is for the color boys, color boys like me, brother fence walker fringe society, pressurizing exponentially. To know that queer erasure is as much of a consistency within the hip hop community as it is within the black community or within uh, the black diasporic communities as well. It means that I've done a lot of tracing back of 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 queer rappers and queer artists, specifically just for, for my own sense, black male presenting queer artists. Tyler the Creator is a interesting case study in this to go from Goblin, this incredible industrially gritty aggressive sound, um, a few years ago, through now to to to, to Scumfuck Flower Boy and then his most recent album Igor. 
<laughs> shows um it shows hip hop growing up and and hip hop as a community now being faced with some of its own incongruities and inconsistencies. Tyler the Creator goes on Funk Master Flex's freestyle and because the rhyme, the word flex rhymes with sex and Tyler the Creator is a is a queer man, he's cracking jokes with Funk Flex, would you get ready for some hot buck sex in this roller decks? And he's just rolling through rhymes and Funk Flex is immediately like, whoa, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not au fait with this, maybe I'm not cool with this. That right there is a microcosm of <laughs> of of power structures and gatekeepers within hip hop still wondering if it's okay to 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 co-sign queerness within hip hop. You've got um Kevin Abstract coming out of uh, Brockhampton openly queer rappers obviously Lil Nas X of Old Town Road fame is now has now got the longest has now got the single that's been on the top of the Billboard charts for the longest time ever overtaking Mariah Carey of course and he is a queer man and he just presumed everybody knew. And so we're having this conversation internally now, whereas previously it has been, as you say, it uh, because you work within, we work within a white dominated power structure, the homophobia within hip hop has been used as a baton from the external to the internal to beat down people and to invalidate everything. Whereas there's always been queer representation. I've only talked about queer men. Do you know what I mean? There's always been queer representation low key within hip hop, but now we're starting to have these conversations publicly, internally with each other because it's not okay to be homophobic, you know? And there's a lot of, uh, and the more sort of punk side and the more like punk crossover with hip hop, there's a lot of hardcore punk bands who might have, you know, MCs or rappers or vocalists who, when you look at their lyrics, um, there's a band called called Big Joni coming out of the UK, um, and just a lot of the lyrics are very clear, direct political statements. You know, fuck borders, uh, <laughs> fuck your homophobia, fuck fascism, and I like the directness of that as well. And I like the queering of hip hop. Almost takes it back to its radical roots. Completely, it's it's an art form which in its very creation, in its, in its very impetus of we are going to take the little we have and in many cases the nothing we have and we're going to put ourselves wholly into it and we're going to use the community of it to bring each other up. Yeah, because we should be bringing each other up and not <laughs> putting each other down. Mm. Maxine Waters, everyone's favorite auntie, said this in 1994. It would be a foolhardy mistake to single out poets as the cause of America's problems. These are our children, and they've invented a new art form to describe their pains, fears, and frustrations with us as adults. Just because we don't like the symbols they use or the way they look, we should not allow that to cause us to embark on a course of censorship. And I think one of the things, if we look back at hip-hop and the genesis of hip-hop, was that it was an expression of anger and an expression of anger that felt safe, perhaps, right? It was, you could be an angry black man, it seemed, in that space mm. and and be safe in doing so. Yeah, for sure, because there was, in terms of there being, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak f only for myself here, and I'm gonna bring it back to a, to, to a UK experience because obviously there's this uh, interesting dynamic in between um, you know the US and the UK in terms of hip hop and and what is seen to be quote authentic unquote. So there was a moment in 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 like British 
rap culture where it just became entirely uncool to be rapping in an American accent. And I remember this about um, uh, just, uh, I don't know, as I was growing into what I actually understood to be my own hip hop like sensibilities to know that there was a spot where I could express my like absolute fuming fucking rage at just how intensely unsafe I felt, how um, how uncomfortable I felt, how joyful I felt in some moments. I knew that weirdly enough, implicitly, my performances of emotion in like an, a- an everyday day-to-day reality sense it threatened people, you know? If I'm with, like, six of my mates and they all happen to be black and I'm in a part of Essex where I was born where, like, you know, at the last, cens- at the last census 2011, it was, like, 91% white and then, like, you know, uh, sorry, 91% white British then maybe another 3 4% white other. And so just the, it, as a sheer, like, percentages, when me and my mates were grouped together... People would, you know, clutch bags and people would, uh, you know, cross out of the street or they there was always a low key sense, especially in Chelmsford and Essex, of actually any of you at one time fully expressing yourself is a threat. Mm. And we are going to police that. And I felt that hip hop could be incredibly uncensored and unpoliced. And so I sort of ran to it as a site. It was like hip hop and church, man. It was the two ways that I got to not feel that my skin or anything that I happened to have, it didn't feel like a trap for me anymore. It felt like something I could own and speak through as opposed to something that was stopping me from being me. Yeah. Okay, well talk to me about the church and your relationship with it, both as a physical space, um, but also the spirituality or faith explored within it. So brought up evangelical Christian, Mum was a Methodist, dad's a, dad's a Quaker, former Methodist. Um, church functioned primarily as just a safe community. My parents, God bless my parents, were super, super dope at placing me within communities that would love me for me. The church was a way that I could connect with my own spirituality. Um, and it was always music. It was always the songs. I was playing music in church from when I was about 12 13 started off like you know backing vocals in the in in, in the gospel band and then because i was a very musical child as well in music school sort of you know wednesday after school and saturday morning i just ended up staying in the church band because it was the thing that kept me really coming back to the well coming back to the peace that passes understanding it really did center me there so i was playing like keys uh backing vocals drums rhythm guitar bass guitar uh a couple of other instruments a few times and to have this song book and I really do have to go through the prism of the songs and for want of a better phrase the cultural product was what was keeping me in the physical space mm. so when I realized that I could get the same feeling of that cultural product the same feeling of sense of togetherness and community I moved away from the church because it wasn't serving it, it wasn't it wasn't the only conduit through which I could get my spiritual fix weirdly enough and now i feel that same energy when i'm at a really good jam night or or when i'm at a super good poetry slam or when i'm in a place where um where (laughs) there's effectively a person on stage some music some art happening and there's an audience of people experiencing it church was the first time that i was actually in that dynamic 
and felt safe there, yeah. What an incredible connection to make. This idea that that you discovered that church wasn't the only conduit to this feeling of spirituality. I think as as a queer as a queer black person, I left the church because I couldn't reconcile my sexuality, my queerness in that space. But at the same time, I also walked away from my relationship with God and mm-hmm. some sort of higher power, right? I had I had connected the two directly together, right? This is how you worship. This is how you have faith within this very specific space. And so what a fascinating connection that you then went out and found that spirituality somewhere else, right? And that it moved the same things within you. I really do have to give all like thanks and praise to my parents. I'm I'm very privileged to have two parents who who in the black diaspora they know specifically where they're from i can i'm privileged enough to track to trace family lines back multiple generations but also it gave me a real firm grounding in in who i was even while while i was still figuring that out i have two parents who are still thankfully together and happily married and live together um i know that that is a massive part of privilege within within the black queer community that puts me in a position of a privilege above many other people but it really does make me reflect on how i was able to feel safe even within the incongruities of you know bible doctrine it, while i was while i was being attempted while people were trying to spoon feed me the tiny parts of 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 division and and hatred that i saw within the church community as i reached about 16 17 About 1617 was the same time that I was gigging in lots of indie bands just like around the local scene so pubs and dive bars and like you know I'm on after a metal act and then before like you know an acoustic act with a six string guitar uh, I I found that I would I found it an immediate need that I needed to get this communal spiritual cultural fix but I couldn't get it to the church anymore because it was becoming the cognitive dissonance with me being in the church and giving myself in that full sense of worship in the church was becoming too much and I couldn't take it anymore I needed somewhere where I didn't have to maybe avoid this topic or not say this thing and I found that poetry a couple years later was was the most egalitarian like a, a poetry slam or an open mic night can be the most egalitarian cultural experience of anybody on the earth I believe and that's why you know i'm <laughs> found myself living life in poetry i suppose the the question is and this has just come to me the question we're all asking is where can we be ourselves wow where can we be ourselves that's a deep one you know mm. Mm. i feel i can be myself in poetry i feel that i feel that even the question of figuring out who myself is and this act of discovering the self one it's a constant process and poetry is like a fundamental part of my process like i'll use poetry a lot of the time to figure out what i think about the world or to work a way through my emotions or to um or to investigate a topic um or to just i use poetry as a machine as like as a as a as a praxis as some kind of some kind of mercurial mercurial process where at the start 
I will have I'll come in with this massive jumble of thoughts and things that I want to work out or maybe I'll maybe I'll have nothing maybe it's just one line and then across the time of of having the first idea writing the first draft maybe hammering out some things that didn't work and did work and then maybe I read it to myself once and get an audio recording then I go to an open mic night and perform the poem and then other people have got it and then I have to perform it for the next like month or year or maybe two years across that whole process I've changed the world has changed the poetry has changed a bit but crucially the poem or the idea of the poem is actually the same and so that for me provides so much like grounding and keeps me coming back to the well of poetry and the well of lyricism and the well of rap music as ways for me to like reflect on stuff i do loads of social media work as as you mentioned in my intro you found me through social media there's an idea of this fracturing of self that we have to do to interact with social media. Speak. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, it's, it's terrifying because we don't, not we don't, but only speaking for myself personally, I definitely realise that my mental health and my mental state in reference to myself and how I view myself can be so, so drastically warped when I'm spending a lot of time splitting my uh, my voice across social media accounts i run my own stuff i run um you know the 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 promotions department if you will for for penting the hip-hop poetry collective that i'm a part of uh, boomerang a different poetry night that i'm running uh, i've uh, got the radio show as well and each of these sorts of things are aspects of myself that are one type 100 entirely myself but they're not the full me and so a lot of the time I take a step away from, you know, the phone and I take a step away from having to be on communications mode, be that in this wonderful podcast or be that like, you know, on social media. I take away from all of that communication and I look at myself and I'm like, yeah, but who are you? Without all of this stuff to say, without all of these ready-made templates or vocal styles or writing styles or copy styles or whatever, who are you? And that's when I usually go outside and take a walk <laughs> or like go to nature or go to a beach or call up an old mate. Yeah, I think there's a fracturing of self which is implicit in the way that we've been taught to use social media that is so unhealthy. But poetry, weird enough, is a nice is a nice uh, flip side to that because poetry is built for social media a lot of the time, especially slam poetry, short three minute pieces on any topic. As long as you've got, you know, um, a way to speak, you don't even need a microphone. You could be writing your poetry or Instagram poetry, the rise of your rupee cowers, but you also your rise of, the, you know, democratic. Anybody can just grab a pen and write. There's all of these different ways that we interact, yeah, all these different ways in which we're interacting with ourselves and finding out what ourselves actually are. Yeah, I think you're, I think it's a great question to write, to ask even who... Where can we be ourselves? Where can we be ourselves? Mm. What is a self? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I like that. Yeah. What? <laughs> what am I? Who am I? Mm. Well, this this idea of where can we be? Where can I be myself? Where can we be ourselves? It feels like it runs through everything, right? It, it's it's the church. It's the barber shop. It's hip hop. It's the workplace. It's social media. It's everything. And and there are seldom, I think, places that deserve our fullness or where our fullness, we'd be safe in our fullness, right? And so 
as you say, the fracturing of ourselves is is almost necessary, maybe. But I think so many of us are struggling with that, yeah. right? I want to be seen as the full-feeling human being that I am with those complexities and flaws and incongruities and... It's very hard to find those spaces. But you use the word deserve, which which places deserve my full self. And that is a whole different question because in my in my mind as a as a as a poet, I think that I have potentially a artistic not obligation, not responsibility, but for my craft to have been what it is has been for human history, it needs to be based in society. It needs to be on some level, you know, a a socialist in the in the you know dictionary definition of the term endeavor. And so I think of I think of what places deserve my full creativity, and it's a long list. I could say arguably it's everywhere and everyone, but I can't give that, and not everyone is ready to receive the fullness of what it is to be a complex like person. I, I've I've performed at many, many festivals or nights or just to in in places where where it's been damaging for me to, you know, go in and reaccess some really uh maybe traumatic or problematic experiences or I've had or or I've had to be emotionally available in places that give me none of that back, that don't reciprocate that at all. And this is an ongoing problem within, not well, no, it, it's a problem. It's it's one of the largest criticisms I have with contemporary spoken word, sort of in the UK post uh, post maybe like two thousands and the rise of slam in the US. Is this tendency for us to mine trauma and the conversation is definitely one that is progressing and moving forward but it does really bear repeating that to be emotionally open and to be using poetry in the way that a lot of us do to you know as a as a partly therapeutic exercise means that we have to take twice as much care in asking the question which places do deserve to hear this piece and am I ready to perform this piece? Will performing this piece now for me in this place and this time, will it actually help me? Will it hinder me? Will it affect my mental health? How will it affect my mental health? It's it's a conversation that I've ha- that I'm having to consistently reevaluate um, because you know every every time after summer after the festivals where I've maybe been in a field in Wiltshire with a you know about. Th- 400 predominantly white people in a tent trying to speak some real, you know, dark home truths about the the white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy and how it can, you know, effectively go jump up its own ass, you know, and just get nothing back. <laughs> like, feel like you're hammering your fist against the wall and everyone's just walking past. It's so demoralizing sometimes, but it's an important conversation to have because it's how we build up a community standard of being prepared to take care of ourselves, you know? How do we heal instead of self-flagellating with poetry, you know? Hungover haircut. Long-term overdue self-care. Fresh to death. Deep breath. Hands caressing hair. 
Imprints of rustling palms tugging at black roots. Barbershop stories often rambling and slow give me time to think. Background chatter spills over from chairs and these mirrors reflect perceptions. Hair like loose leaf tea. Split from forest safety, now infusing, musing, perusing a zine on black male psychology, ashamed to be scared. Peacocking bleach blonde gentrifier misreads, is shown up, called out and leaves. I wring hands in chair as follicles frolic down in metamorphosis, cocoon comfort gone, continuation of vibe new management time. Afro helmet off, shape of head re-examined, and redress the balance. Shops as safe spaces, reclaimed intimacy where value is not cash. This is worthwhile paid peacetime. I decide to talk or not, and peep the pleasant buzz. I think it's interesting the relationship that black men have to the barber and how similar it can be, I think, perhaps to how black women think of their own hair, their own crowns. Mm, It's definitely a site of healing, you know? It's a site where I feel I can be my full self. I really do. I've been having my hair cut by the same wonderful barber. Shout out to Auntie Kakra. Um, I've been having my hair cut by the same wonderful woman since basically before I was born, friend of my mum, and she's always cut my hair, always cut my hair. When I sit in that chair, I know that I can be vulnerable. I can speak about what it is that is troubling me, and I know that weird enough, even though she's like one of my mum's you know, close friends, I know that the stuff won't reach out in that way. I know that the conversation is private in a real sense. And it's also about being in touch with my body, you know? Like, as a, as a queer black man who passes as straight and who people code as straight, to be aware of my body in a way that is not being dictated to me <laughs> is really wonderful. It means I can... I can take a moment to feel like beauty, like, and to look at myself and be like, no, you are an absolute snack. Like, you're beautiful. And that's, and that was very rare for me, actually, like, before I was, before I was aware of my sexuality or before I'd even thought about my sexuality, I kind of just went with the automatic descriptors of me that were given to me and at me by people who had power within the social structure i didn't have any models uh, to 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 follow in the footsteps of but when i'm in the barber chair with auntie you know i can i can take minutes and time it's like i say in the poem it's like paid peace time and it's worthwhile and 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 it's on my terms, but it's it's a black space. Auntie always has like just <laughs> the coolest music playlist, and I've always been able to d- literally dip off, fall asleep in the chair. She'll wake me back up and be like, "Cool, we're done now. You can like go." <laughs> yeah, I love barber shops because I just was <laughs> dropped off there and spent many many an hour waiting for mum in the barber shop as a kid. So, 
And I guess they can be sites of intimacy. This touching of the head. My barber is very gentle. Yeah. Right? He moves my head very softly. Um, he takes great care. It, it's like 30 minutes of, as you said, safety, but also of intimacy, right? I think it's a lot to let people touch your head, right? Mm. And, and to be, in effect, at someone else's mercy, right? Yeah, especially with the, the, the power dynamics of black hair as they are, like the amount of, I, I, would, I would be terrified to know the percentages of times when somebody has touched my hair and it's not actually been consensual, mm. like across my life. It's going to be shockingly high. <laughs> it's, I used to have an afro and it's why I cut it off. Yeah. yeah. I've been rocking the, the, the mini fro look sort of since about 12, 13, but I just, and it's always worse in summer. Oh my God, can I touch your hair? Oh my God, it feels like a sheep. Oh my God, it's like a cloud. Oh, can I just run my hands through it? I'm like, no, like definitely not. Sheep. <laughs> Honestly, like just the, the dehumanization you feel in that moment. Yeah, and so it's this process. Yeah, it's definitely this process of intimacy and vulnerability and healing and, um, and, and to be a full self and to be comfortable in that. And specifically because my barber is a black woman, like there's things that I would say to her that I wouldn't say around my men. And mm. that speaks to maybe some of my own, um, <laughs> so some of the things that I need to like sort out in terms of like maybe how I interact with, with, with men and women and people of other binaries, sorry, people of other genders. But while I'm still working through the internalized, like, you know, misogyny that, that I've been brought up in and around. And while I'm still in a process of getting better, I really can't overstate the importance of having a black woman who's known me since basically I was born, who was taking care of me, who like, you know, I, I, I know her children, I babysat them. We're, we're close in a community sense. We're close in like this professional sense where we've had, weirdly enough to her, it's been a professional relationship for the past all the years of my life. And it's just this level of connection where as an adult growing up to be like, you know, a black adult moving through this world, the importance of valuing elders, listening to elders and taking time to listen. Sometimes I'm in the barber chair and it's just auntie talking to me for like 40 minutes and that's wonderful. I understand more about her and it's so intimate. It is so intimate letting someone touch your hair and beautify you and and be that close to you. It's a wonderful thing and I think it's why there's a lot of you know resurgent um, uh, interest in the barbershop as that community space like you know BBC Three shooting stuff in barbershops Big Nasty has a great series where it's like let's argue and it's just in the barbershop this thing or that thing I love the idea of the barbershop as, a, as an intimate black space and I, and I think one that queer black people haven't always felt comfortable within right and so this kind of reclamation of this space um, but again I'm, th there's a connection to everything right it's if there's homophobia within the barbershop, it's simply a reflection of the homophobia in the streets. If there is transphobia in hip hop, it is a reflection of transphobia in the streets. I like how you say if. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be generous. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I wonder the role that art can play in addressing these underlying issues 
I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, no. It makes a lot of sense. Because I know it amplifies them, mm-hmm. right? If, if we take sociopolitical commentary in, in poetry or indeed paintings or in art galleries, art is, is a way of amplifying kind of what's there with a view to redressing it. Mm. I think there's two questions that you're getting at within there. And so one is sort of where do people interact with an experience art? Because if art is something that is elitist and exclusive, so let's say that the most challenging work of the day is just an opera that's got like 35 quid tickets and is playing for like, you know, however long, but only a certain subset of people with economic wealth and access will be able to see it. Then no matter how polemic the work is or how revolutionary or how, you know, uh, important it is, it's not going to reach people and have the sort of, maybe groundswell or, or, or impact that the piece deserves, yeah? And this is why poetry is the flip side of that, because poetry can reach you wherever you are, whenever you are, however you're consuming your media. And then the second question is sort of how how can we how can we use art forms to achieve social change? And for me, a lot of the work is just attention. Our attention is so scattered all of the time and there's so many terrifying and so many worthwhile causes to be fighting for. A lot of the time an issue can be just holding attention, just looking at the same issue consistently with a calm mind for maybe longer than uh, longer than the, the, the scheduled outrage time is. Let's say you're reading a piece on uh, on the amount of... Uh, black people who have killed after being uh, after coming into contact with the police in the UK since 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 the 1990s and since like the Stephen Lawrence case the numbers are appalling. No one's been prosecuted. Um, <laughs> there's there's been uh, a reflection of uh, I think the blue wall they call it in America where police unions will never indict one of their own and so and so police officers who have been um, <laughs> police officers who have had British citizens die while in their care. Somehow they are allowed to hide behind the weird shared responsibility and, you know, complete lack of accountability within the white supremacist policing structure. Mm. But to work any of this out after reading maybe a two-minute piece in the Daily Express about... Do you know what I mean? And so poetry is a good way for, for three, four minutes or however long for us to just hold an idea in our heads and to, as a community, a lot of the time, just to be thinking about the issue. It's quite hard to quantify and it's infuriatingly intangible. If I could get down the impact that this has on an arts council application, do you know what I mean? It would be wonderful, it would be easy. But there's Cornell West has got this phrase that in like the Western world, the black diaspora has become well-adjusted to injustice. You know, we're so close to it and it's so fine because we're just just about getting by as bad as it is. But hey, for us, uh, maybe it's all right. We're too comfortable. Dr. Hikinda Andrews says it as well. Um, It's about just holding our faces properly to the to the atrocity and to the horror and to the violence and to all of these things. But to have a steady mind while doing it and to be able to still hang on to our humanity while doing it. I think I think I think that's what poetry does. I think it's at its best and even at its most like 
weird enough, even at its most commercial, as disgusting as that is, poetry is your nationwide adverts, your Range Rover adverts, your, your you know, your, your tube There's adverts. Body tube, yeah. <laughs> all of this stuff. It all plays on like a weirdly understood internal truth that poetry can change minds and like art can change people's opinions. It's 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 quite literally an impossible thing to refute because <laughs> you look back at how many people have maybe their first experience of, of seeing a trans person was seeing uh, Reese Lyons read their poem at the Roundhouse 2017 slam about about like I am trans and I am a woman. There's so much of this um, that I think poetry can be used for social good. It puts something in your hand, right? You mentioned the intangible. Mm. And certainly my relationship with poetry is like, ah, I can put my hands around this, right? This thing. Um, Hanif Abdurraqib, who's one of my favorite poets, is just (laughs) so amazing. Um, He has this poem called Moist. And he says, you know, I say moist like the blood. uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says moist like the blood on the corner of my street keeps my black moist (laughs) right like it's just you'd never describe you'd never think to describe it like that but then he says it and you're like ah it's moist yeah you know i don't know and it speaks there's so much in that one line Mm. yeah Uh, i'm a a big fan of hanif um he recently released a book go ahead in the rain notes to a tribe called quest Mm. and it oh it, it scratched all of my itches of like social documentation like through the lens of hip hop as 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 a black writer and I'm just like, oh, I love Hanif. And he's got the best titles in the game. Like some of the titles to his poems are sick. He he named his one of his collections after a quote from um The Wire. Okay. Um because you know there, people are always talking about our crowns, right? James Baldwin, your your crown has already been bought and paid for. All you have to do is put it on your head. Um this person in the wire said the crown ain't worth much if the nigga wearing it is always getting his shit took. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a really cathartic laugh there. (laughs) So to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Uh, What do I hope for? I hope for like freedom, man. My mind's just gone to that Nina Simone clip where where somebody, an interviewer asks her, what is freedom and how do you find freedom? And she goes, freedom is not having to worry about anything. Freedom is liberation. Maybe that's a better, actually, no, that's what I hope for. Liberation in in the real fundamental sense to have the liberty from tyranny peace is not peace is not something that will be achieved quietly or easily or simply or quickly liberation is something that that we will have to be fighting for consistently as a process and so that's what i hope for i hope for i hope for liberation and i hope for internal peace and external like actually actual in the deep dark heart of my soul freedom that'd be a fine thing to have i think that'd be a wicked way to live imagine being truly free thank you so much for being here
It's been an absolute pleasure, Josh. It's been an awesome conversation. Love you, man. <laughs> hey. Peter P.J. Johnson is the repeat beat poet, a hip-hop poet who confronts, queers, and investigates hip-hop's evolving and ever-important role as an expression of a vast and varied blackness. You can find links to his work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.